So here we are in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. This is week 6 of the study, and this is going to be a shorter message today because I have an important meeting with the worship team, and I want to be sure to finish on time. But the author has been showing us that Yeshua is greater than angels. The fact is, he's in the process of showing that with the exception of the Father, Yeshua is above all else. And last week we found uh, out why, as we focus on Yeshua being uh, our brothers, he's higher because he made us brothers. Brothers, we are a family. And we're going to continue with this family theme today. We didn't really get to focus on the proof texts last week, and so I want to do that because they're going to be important. In verse 7, he says, You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And the first proof text is uh, from Psalm 8. And I want to read the Aramaic version of Psalm 8. Because I think it, it really sums up what uh, the author is trying to get across. And it says this, O God, our Master, how lofty is your name and praiseworthy in all the earth. You have placed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of children and infants you have established strength because of your oppressors to bring to naught the enemy and the violent man. Because I see your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have fixed in place. What is son of man? Because you will remember his deeds. And a son of man, because you will punish him. And you have made him a little less than angels and you will crown him with glory and brightness. You have made him ruler over the works of your hands and all things you have placed under his feet, sheep and oxen, all of them, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and Leviathan, who passes along the paths of the sea. O oh God, our Master, how lofty and praiseworthy is your name in all the earth. And so in this Aramaic version of Psalm 8, this Aramaic translation of Psalm 8, it's really kind of a proof text, a proof text of what he's been saying. He's above all things. The entire creation, because he suffered and he's been crowned with glory, all things have been placed under his feet, even Leviathan. Who's Leviathan? Well, he's the adversary of God, a fallen angel who now rules the earth. He's the ruler of the present evil age, but he's under the feet of the Holy One of God, ultimately. Let's read in the book of Hebrews from verse 8. It says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him, but we see Yeshua, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Yeshua is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so Yeshua was diminished 
from the eternal Son of God to become as fallen man, Yeshua, who was the one that by through whom and all, all things were created, including man, because what does it say in the what does it say? As it is written, it says, Let us make man in our image. And yet he was diminished so that he might relate to us. And we might relate to him. And he might become kin to us, so to speak. He's our kin now. We're told by the writer that through the redemption he secured, we have become brothers. In other words, he became like us so that he could become the redeemer of his brothers. And brothers include all men. The Jewish people, those are the nations who will accept this amazing gift of God. And that's something we saw in the book of Romans. Paul clearly calls the Jewish people his brothers. And then he calls the non-Jewish people who follow the Messiah his brothers as well. The Jewish people, and particularly the ancients, have a different concept and had a different concept of brother and family than we do today. When we think a brother, it's our immediate family. In ancient Israel, it was your immediate family. And then there was the tribe you belonged to. They were your brothers as well. And then there was ultimately the nation of Israel. They were all your brothers as well. And we see this still in the Jewish people today. There's this strong sense of brotherhood and family still among the Jewish people today. We see it in the Messianic Jewish movement. And most who are not Jewish really don't understand because the focus is so Jewish. The main focus in the Messianic Jewish congregations is really the salvation of the Jewish people. How can we reach our Jewish people? And non-Jews often come into the movement with the attitude, with the, with the attitude why is this congregation so focused on Jewish and the Jewish people? Because we don't understand this pull of brotherhood and family that's been instilled in the Jewish people by God. And the reason that we don't have the, don't understand is we don't have this built this. We don't have built in us this sense of brother. Let me give you an example. When the average non-Jewish person comes to faith in the Messiah Yeshua, let's say he's a German. He doesn't all of a sudden have this dire urge to go out and get as many Germans as he can find to come to faith in the Messiah Yeshua. He doesn't distinguish. However, when a Jewish followers of Messiah began to come to faith, they immediately turned back to family. They went home to witness to family. And then their other family. They went out to witness to all Jewish people. That was the focus of their outreach. There was among the Messianic Jews a desire to turn back to the Jewish roots of the faith. And we all understand that because we want the truth. Right? But often non-Jews don't understand and even resent the focus of the Jewish people in Messianic Jewish congregations. The fact is, we have a Jewish Messianic congregation spring forth exactly and because of this sense of family, this sense of longing to bring their brothers to faith in the Messiah Yeshua. That began 
That was, that was the beginning of the Messianic congregation. It began this effort to reach out to their brothers. And they make efforts within their bylaws and such to ensure that the organization remains Jewish, with a Jewish focus, with a Jewish outreach. And non-Jews often misunderstand this and resent this as well. And we can see the same sense of family in the letter to the Romans. Paul says in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unseen anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for the sake of Messiah, for, from Messiah, for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. You see, many Christians find this Jewish focus disconcerting because they don't really understand this family pull, this pull of brotherhood that God built into the Jewish people. You know, but after a few readings through the scriptures, you begin to understand this nation of Israel and why it exists and how God uses this sense of brotherhood and family to keep it together, to bind it together to make sure that it survives. I know when I studied, I saw what happened to the Jewish people in our faith. I understood. And it was plain to see why this was so important. The sense of family, the sense of brotherhood amongst the Jewish people was a key factor in bringing about all the prophecies that we see today with the restoration of Israel, with the spiritual awakening of the Jewish people. You know, God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people. The fact is, he promised it long before there were a Jewish people. He promised it to a Gentile named Abraham, and then to his son Isaac and Jacob. And the greatest proof of, all, of what all that we read in the Bible is true, that every prophecy in the Bible is true, is the nation of Israel. God said he would bring the Jewish people back to the land in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they were dispersed off the land in 135 Common Era, scattered amongst the nations until most can't even say what their ancestral tribe was any longer. They were persecuted. The world tried to exterminate them. But what did God say? Zechariah chapter 10 verse 8 says, I will signal for them and gather them in and surely I will redeem them and they will be as numerous as before. Though I scattered them among the peoples, yet in distant land they will remember and, they, and their children will survive and they will return and I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon and there will be no more room for them till there will be no more room for them. God said he would gather them and gather them he is doing. And it's all due in part to this sense of family and brotherhood. You see, the nations are lining up against Israel. And the Palestines say, this is our land. Well, it's not their land. And yet the nations line up against Israel. You didn't see the nations line up against Jordan when Jordan, Jordan threw the Palestinians out, but they sure are going to line up against Israel, aren't they? 
But that's okay because God said it's going to happen. It's in his plan. He's got it all under control. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 3 says, The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. The nations that attack Israel, God is not going to be happy with them. And Messiah himself will fight against them. And then what will happen to the nations who attack Israel? Well, after the Lord fights against them, there'll be a remnant. And Zechariah addresses that in chapter 14. He says, then the survivors of all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and celebrate His Feast of Tabernacles. You see, there will be survivors who are going to come up and worship the King of the nation of Israel. And the king will be a Jewish man named Yeshua. And the kingdom will be the Jewish people who are now back in the land. That God gave them. You see, that's why what we see happening today, the restoration of Israel and the nations lining up one by one against Israel, is such an amazing proof that everything in this book is true. Scripture speaks of a spiritual awakening as well. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives. And the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. And the clan of the house of Levi and their wives. And the class of the house of Shemi and their wives. And all the rest of the clans and their wives. If you're not Jewish, you should be blessed. You should bless God every day that he has led you here to this place and to this movement because we are the start of the nation looking to the one they have pierced. But it's just the start. I don't know about you, but I don't know about me, but I know that some of the younger people here are going to see this in their lifetime. I hope I get to see it. I don't know if I will, but I sure hope I get to see it. But even if I don't, I can go to rest knowing that I was part of the start. And it's going to happen, although I don't see it. I don't know the exact time. No one knows the exact time, Yeshua said. But the point I want to make is show me another people who were scattered like the Jewish people, 2,000 years ago, and yet are gathered once again to their homeland. The nations that this happened to in history are no more. They don't exist. But this sense of brotherhood that God built into the Jewish people aids in this gathering. They didn't assimilate, but remained together as a family. 
You know, the largest sect of Judaism in this country is Reformed. And for the most part, they don't even believe the Bible. Many of their rabbis don't believe the Bible. But even after 2,000 years, they as brothers still gather together and practice the faith of their forefathers because they are brothers. And in the spiritual restoration as well, within the Jewish people, there's an awakening to the Messiah. The other point of this is that all the followers of Messiah are now part of the same brotherhood. You're part of this same brotherhood. And again, we see this in the words of the Apostle Paul. In the book of the, to the Romans, he says in verse 1, he says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be spiritually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you as I have among other Gentiles. Non-Jews have joined the family of God. Non-Jews are grafted into the olive tree. The nations coming to faith in Messiah Yeshua is fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this is hard. Because while non-Jews are grafted in, they don't become Jewish. Paul is quite clear. Non-Jews are to keep their distinctions. And we'll get to the reason in a moment. But we'll find that it's important so that the world can see that the nations are turning toward the God of Israel and the Messiah. Not toward the rabbis, but toward the God of Israel and his Messiah. Sadly, the non-Jews who have been grafted in do not always have the same sense of brotherhood toward non-Messianic Jewish people as Paul had toward them. Okay, so enough of this uh, rabbit trail, but I thought it was important today. But I, what I want you to see is the difference between our concept of brother and the true concept of brother that we, we should have. Just as Paul was concerned, considered us brothers, we too should consider the people of Israel our brothers, whether they realize it or not. And the key point here there is that there's a bond between us, or at least there should be a bond between us, and it should be unbreakable. We're brothers. And if we look deeper, we can see that the, that the author is driving at exactly this and why in the, it was uh, why man needed redemption. I want to look at a Hebrew word here, and it's goel. And the Hebrew word goel is the word for redeemer. But notice what it says. To act as a kinsman redeemer. To avenge, to revenge, ransom. Do the part of a kinsman. Do the part of next of kin. Act as a kinsman redeemer. You see, in coming into this age and being decreased to lower than an angel as a fallen man, Yeshua has become a goel, a kinsman redeemer. Let's look at the Encyclopedia Judaica and look at some of the uh, a summary of what a kinsman redeemer was all about. Family solidarity is reflected in the customs such as blood revenge. The avenger, goel, 
also had other responsibilities. A near kinsman was required to redeem a relative who had been forced in, by poverty to sell himself into slavery. The same obligation held true for a family property that had been sold because of prop poverty. The book of Ruth refers to this custom, but it's complicated by the requirement of a surviving widow also being taken in the Leverite practice. Family was a religious as well as a social unit. And so we see here the wide-ranging obligations of a goel, of a kinsman redeemer. A brother was responsible to redeem his kin. And Yeshua came as a brother, and he has redeemed his kin. Look at this. The first thing we read, he was an avenger of blood. It was his duty to take vengeance upon those who had been killed. His kin. And what did we read in the book of Revelation? He will open the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They also cried out in a long, loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, how holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Yeshua is the avenger. Second, his responsibility was to pay the price of those who had sold themselves into slavery. And what did Yeshua do? Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive full rights as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. And finally, as in the case of Ruth, he might, uh, and a bride, he might take away her shame, her shame of not having a husband. And Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Messiah loved the congregation, and gave himself up to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant congregation, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Messiah does the congregation. We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Messiah and his kehilat, the congregation. When Messiah became a man, he became a near kinsman to us. A redeemer to us. It gave him specific rights under the Torah. You see, contrary to popular belief amongst Christians and so forth, is that God follows his own Torah. It's not been done away with. He follows his own Torah. Not one jot or tittle will by any means pass away until all things be established, Yeshua said. I believe it. And you can see it's true. All you have to do is look at the nation of Israel. Not one jot or tittle will abide and pass away. And I don't care how many nations line up against her. Again, if you lose sight 
of the Torah being eternal, then the whole argument of the book of Hebrews falls apart. Messiah is our goel. Think of this as a legal obligation on Messiah. He's the one and the only one who's legally empowered by Torah to be the goel. He is the authority. He has the authority to help us. And not just that, but it was also said of the responsibility of the goel, the redeemer, to redeem the family property that had been sold because of poverty. And again, miracle of miracles, we see today the restoration of the land of Israel. Probably the greatest evidence in modern times that every word of the scriptures is true. It's yes and amen. And so the point that he's making is that he's superior because he came, became a man and a brother to men. He suffered and because of that, he as Goel has redeemed many sons of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews will bring another proof text. And this one is going to come from Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. We should all understand that by now. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 says, I will declare your name among my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And I want to read just a little bit more of Psalm 22, why you would use this for a proof text. Verse 14 says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My tongue is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of these dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horn of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And so he speaks of how Messiah suffered and how many sons of God were, brought, were, were made brothers to Yeshua. In this amazing proof of what Messiah has done for us. It's such an amazing proof of what Messiah has done for us that the rabbis had to really change the, 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 the translation. Instead of, they've pierced my hands and my feet, they change it to, like a lion at my feet. How much sense does that make? Like a lion at my feet? But they did it so Christians couldn't use this passage in their witness of the Messiah. You see, this is a perfect proof text. But he uses another one from Isaiah chapter 8. Listen to this. Uh, Verse 13 of Hebrews says, Again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 8 and read a little bit more. Verse 15 says, Many of them will stumble. 
They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. But bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah says of the Messiah and the children God has given him that they are signs and symbols from the Lord. Put this verse in your hearts because it will keep you and comfort you as we see the world corrupting before our very eyes. It says we're signs and symbols. What are signs? Well, they're markers in the road to tell you where you are. And I can tell you where we are. We're near the end. God is restoring Israel in our day, in our lifetime. Keep your eyes on Israel. They and we are the signpost. Right? You are moving into prophecy zone, the completion of prophecy. There's a signpost. Step ahead. Your next stop, the kingdom of God. I had to do that. <laughs> you see, this passage really says it all. The disciples of Yeshua will have the testimony. They're going to have the law of God in their hearts. They will be the disciples of the Messiah, the children, the brothers of the King. And now we're waiting on the Lord who has hidden his face from Jacob, right? Are we not the ones who long to hear the Jewish people say, Baruch Ababa Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? We through Yeshua are the children God gave, the Messiah Yeshua, the brothers of the Messiah. And if you are one of the grafted in ones, one of those with God's word on your heart, one of the ones hoping and longing for the Jewish people to turn to Messiah, so that Messiah will hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who pray for the Jewish people, who supports the efforts of the Jewish people to reach their people, the Messianic Jews to reach their people, then you are a sign. You are a symbol of what the Lord is doing in Israel. Bless his holy name that he has included us in this plan of redemption. Amen? Let's bring the worship team forward.